1: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 115th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, Sharing Knowledge So People Can Thrive. Today's topic is Are Labor Markets Competitive? I'm joined by Eric A. Posner, the author of How Antitrust Failed Workers. The publisher is Oxford University Press. Eric is a professor of law at the University of Chicago. In 2018, he published two different books that got notable commendation. One was the by The Economist for Radical Markets, and the other in The Financial Times for Last Resort, The Financial Crisis, and The Future of of bailouts Uh, eric is by the way currently on leave from the university of chicago he is working for the antitrust division of the u.s justice department and i should mention or note that eric's views are not necessarily those of the justice department
0: welcome to the show eric thank you so much dan
1: it's nice to be here no i think it's an all-important topic so let's uh, plunge in by giving us a brief overview of the book if you don't mind
0: Sure. So as I'm sure your listeners know, um, antitrust law, which is the law that is used to go after monopolists and other large corporations that collude, uh, has been in the news a lot lately. And most of the focus has been on the big tech cases like uh, Google and uh, Facebook and so forth. But a number of years ago, um, I got interested in another application of antitrust, which is to labor markets, And in particular, uh, situations where you either have very large employers who are able to monopolize or, as economists call it, monopsonize labor markets, or a collusion among very large employers so that they, for example, agree to keep wages low not to compete for uh, workers. There was some academic research that suggested that this type of behavior uh, not only existed but was very common. But there was very little um, law about it, very few cases, you know very li- very few very little written about it. So I decided to plunge in. and the book, in short, just argues that antitrust law should be used more aggressively to counter uh, anti-competitive behavior by employers against uh, their workers. I argue both that um, the law already um, prohibits that kind of behavior. it's just never used. Or very rarely used to do so. I also argue that the law should be uh strengthened because this is a very serious problem.
1: Okay. Let's follow up on one of those two tangents right away. The rarely used. Um what would be your prognosis as to why that's the case?
0: Yeah, rarely used. Uh so just to, to give a sense of this, you know, every year there are probably hundreds of antitrust cases, uh maybe you know, as many as a thousand. So these are cases that are brought in court, sometimes by the government, sometimes uh, by private parties. You know, of those cases, probably not more than a handful, you know, fewer than 10 are uh, labor market cases. Um, Now, the question why that, you know, is so is a good one, and it's complicated. So let me just give you a few possibilities. Uh, The first is that um, when antitrust law was first developed in this country in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, the general assumption was that workers who faced uh, very powerful employers would obtain protection by joining unions. And uh, the right to join a union was later recognized in federal law. Um, So, for quite a while, the view probably was that if employers are being underpaid, the thing for them to do is to complain to their union, which could negotiate a better contract. But unions in uh, the last, you know, 60, 70 years have lost a lot of members. So that no longer uh, is recourse uh, for employees. That's probably the main reason.
1: Okay. And um, it sounds like there might be a couple other, you know, fairly strong possibilities.
0: So other reasons are that uh, antitrust laws are very, uh, antitrust cases are very expensive um, usually, they're brought either by businesses or classes of consumers that are organized by plaintiffs' lawyers. Um, given that there have been so few cases involving workers, these sorts of cases are much riskier. So, um, you know, you're not going to get as much private litigation or even government uh, litigation until the law is clarified uh, to some degree. So, that's probably an, another important reason. Then, a final reason. Uh, That's worth mentioning is that um, to a surprising extent, economists have assumed until quite recently that labor markets are competitive, which basically means that, you know, most workers are paid as much as they can be paid. Uh, Basically, they're they're paid by their employers uh, money that's equivalent to their contribution to the employer in terms of the revenues that they produced. In the, it's only in the last five to 10 years uh, that economists have begun to back away from that view. And, uh, you know, so if econ- if, if, uh, competitive, if labor markets are competitive, there's nothing antitrust law can do. But given that it seems that they're actually quite uh, uncompetitive, there's probably a lot of room for antitrust litigation.
1: Oh, uh, that that's intriguing to me. Why is it that it took the last five or ten years seems to me somewhat obvious that uh, markets are are you know not always competitive, just like behavioral economics, which University of Chicago is famous for uh, overturned some other assumptions about economics
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one of these things that are a bit uh, mysterious. Um, the simple answer to the question would be that economists um you know, they, 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 they tend to make assumptions about markets and historically they've assumed that markets of all sort are, are are generally pretty competitive. But then as, you know, data comes out, data will show that some markets are not competitive and, and, and they'll revise their views. So, you know, with respect to product markets, you know, like cars or, you know, when people buy cars, for example, or services... The data is pretty is is pretty easy to get, and it's been known for you know a very long time that these markets are often not competitive, meaning that they're just a few companies that are competing um but for labor markets, it's only in the last you know ten years, maybe twenty years that good data has become available, and that just has to do with um you know the development of new data sources and advances in computing and and that sort of thing so this, empir- this new empirical evidence is relatively new. And so now I think, um, you know, the conventional wisdom is changing and people are developing a more sophisticated view
1: of labor markets. Is it also possible that the uh, greater attention to inequalities of, of income and wealth in the country are helping put the spotlight on this issue at all?
0: Definitely. Um, so um, this is another strand of thinking that has influenced... These new developments in antitrust law and, and 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 my thinking as well. So, as I'm sure your listeners know, um, it's become clear that uh, wages have been stagnating for you know most people, for the median earner and people below. They've been stagnating for decades. Um, during this period, the economy has grown quite significantly, and you know according to you know sort of normal conventional wisdom in economics, you'd expect Wages to grow along with uh, the economy. So uh, not only are people upset about growing inequality, but it's it's also an intellectual puzzle, and one uh, possible expo- explanation for this puzzle may have to do uh, with the lack of lack of competition in, in labor markets. And you know, really, it's a very simple point, which is that if you imagine, let's say, the market for I don't know podcast producers if there are a lot of people who want to hire them, or employers or other people who want to hire them, um, they'll compete up their wage or compensation. But if there's only one or only two, that competition won't occur. And so compensation uh, will stagnate. And it turns out that in the United States, a lot of labor markets are highly concentrated, meaning there are only a few employers. And um, and so you know that's a possible explanation for uh, the stagnation of wages. Although I should, I should add that this is controversial, and and there's a lot of continuing debate about it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm uh, based in Minnesota. There are obviously rural communities, for instance, where a meat packing plant would be the only significant employer around, unless one's a farmer or a very small business person. Um, so th- those situations are very, you know, imaginable.
0: Exactly, and people have done work on this. So if you think of meat processing plants. Factories of various sort, they're often located in rural areas. And um, if you go back 10 or 20 years in a particular rural area where, you know, where people live and commute, you might have seen two or three companies operating these factories. But there's been a wave of mergers over the years. And so today, it's more likely that you'll find just one employer uh, rather than two or two rather than three or four um and so this could definitely and so as people have have less choice they're they're going to be willing to accept lower wages um despite uh you know the harm that that causes to them and the the surrounding
1: community sure and let's let's go to the harm to the, the the stakes involved here you already mentioned you know stagnant wages uh but your book also brings up misemployment misallocation of labor uh can you delve into those for us a bit
0: yeah so Um, The way an economist thinks about this is, you know, you start with the perfectly competitive market where let's imagine one of your, let's say an urban community, there are lots of employers, they're hiring people, you know, they're competing for people uh, very vigorously. And the way they do that is by offering them high wages, relatively high wages, and also good working conditions. And now imagine that a lot of these employers go out of business or they merge. So now we only have a few. So, what effect could that have? So, it could result in in lower wages or work, worse working conditions, but it also means that, for example, people will um, invest less in getting an education because um, you know it'll be harder. They'll be they know they'll be paid less in the future, and it'll be harder to pay off their loans. So, they go into some kind of other work, which you know may need to be done, but is not the best use of their skills. Um, and this, by the way ultimately could lead to higher prices for consumers. If workers aren't being used in the most efficient way, then um, you end up with less efficient markets generally, which means more cost for the consumer ultimately.
1: Okay. So you you mentioned a bit ago that in the last five to 10 years, this is, you know, getting a little more attention uh, as an issue. At the same time, in the last five or 10 years, we have a Supreme Court, for instance, that's Moving in a seemingly a, a different direction, um, you know, how are we going to reconcile this? I mean, you know, you're at the Justice Department now, but that's that's one player in the game. Uh, how do you see things unfolding? Do you do you think the Supreme Court would you characterize it as being fairly open to concerns about antitrust involving workers, or previous rulings would indicate that's likely not to be the case?
0: Yeah well it's it's a good question it's and it's the answer is a, is a bit complicated but let me put it this way over the last um 50 years the supreme court has become less open to antitrust litigation of all types now they haven't gotten rid of it by any means they've just made it you know more difficult for people to bring uh cases and you know this is still going on although it's possible that you know, it's possible that the Supreme Court might be a little bit more open to antitrust going into the future. It's it's a little hard to tell at the moment. But what is interesting is this um, difference between traditional antitrust, where sellers are sued for collusion or monopolization, and this labor market antitrust. I don't see any reason why the Supreme Court would be hostile to labor market, more hostile, hostile to labor market antitrust cases than um, more traditional antitrust cases. And in fact, you know, just a year ago, the Supreme Court decided a pretty famous uh, antitrust case. It was NCAA versus uh, Alston. This was a case involving the student athletes um, who, um, you know, are sort of compensated uh, by universities under NCAA rules. And uh, the student athletes sued, arguing that there was an antitrust violation. Now, you know, the, the, the case is complicated in many ways, but the court was pretty clear that the students, you know, they're workers, effectively. They have uh, the right to bring an antitrust claim against the uh, NCAA. Uh, the court didn't deny that. Um, and in uh, Kavanaugh's uh, concurrence, he was actually quite explicit about um about uh, this problem. So I I don't see the Supreme Court as being a a barrier to these labor-related antitrust cases, at least not, not any more than for ordinary antitrust cases
1: okay and, and you know of course some of these things have been very much in the news you know efforts at unionizing at the Starbucks at uh, Amazon and, and elsewhere so you mentioned that unions were obviously much larger in scale but arguably they're making something of a of a comeback uh, any vantage point you can offer on that, uh, despite your position in the Justice Department, or maybe you can't be quite as explicit as you'd like to be?
0: No, I think this is okay. I'm not involved in, you know, anything union related. That That's all located in the um, Department of Labor. But, um, I, you know, it's going to be a long time before unions have anything like the power that they had in the 1950s when they were at their height. I think union density is the term of art here, the percentage of workers who are in unions, I think it's somewhere around 6%, which is just, you know, very tiny. Um, so, so it might help workers to unionize, uh, in, in certain places. And, uh, but, but I think it's, you know, it's going to be, it's going to probably take some legal changes and changes in public opinion and the attitudes of business before, There's really um, a a substantial amount of unionization in this country may not occur for a long time. It may never occur. Um, You know, if you look at foreign countries like in, in Western Europe, some of the countries have very high levels of labor organization, others less. So there's no it's kind of hard to know what will what will happen in this country.
1: Okay. And you did mention earlier that there was a, a need to strengthen uh, the existing regulations. Uh, so it might be a good juncture to move into, I guess, the solutions part of this conversation. W- what are some changes or improvements that you might advocate for to help avoid some of these uh, you know, bad uh, consequences like misemployment and stagnant wages?
0: Yeah, so, you know, there are basically two kinds, you know, there, well, there, there are kind of three kinds of, you know, antitrust cases. Um, and um, so, first of all, you know, when two big companies merge, uh, they they usually go to the Justice Department or the FTC to, you know, to notify these agencies, and the agencies may have the ability to block the merger. And the theory for blocking mergers is that, you know, you might end up with one or two companies and then they would be able to you know cause harm, and then the second is you know kind of garden variety collusion, where you have another number of companies that get together and just set prices um, and then the third is the monopoly case, which people sometimes think Google or Facebook uh, epitomizes, where you have just one giant firm that controls uh, a market now in the case of labor markets, um, with respect to mergers. The the agencies have traditionally, when they evaluate a merger, they just look at the effect of the merger on uh, prices of goods, right? So that's the traditional antitrust approach. Uh, when I wrote this book and, you know, when I started writing about this uh, before then, uh, the agencies virtually never looked at the possible labor market effects of a merger, the possibility that the merger would allow a merged firm to reduce wages. Um, But that's changing. And and I think the agencies without any change in the law can um, look more seriously at the labor market effects of mergers. So there, it's really not so much that we need legislation. It's more that, you know, the agencies, it's a question of whether the agencies are going to be more aggressive using existing legal tools.
1: Okay. Yeah. Increasing their scrutiny and being aware of that okay, angle. Exactly. Okay.
0: Increasing the scrutiny, demanding the relevant information from these companies when they want to merge. Um, For uh, collusion cases. So, you know, this is the situation where the government or private parties may notice that, you know, a bunch of companies uh, agree to, you know, all of them, you know, have charged very high prices and it's exactly the same. And they think, well, maybe, There are secret meetings where these companies get together and fix prices. And if there's reason to be suspicious, you know, the government could direct the FBI to, you know, to investigate. Or, you know, sometimes private individuals can obtain information and bring a case. This turns out to be a lot harder to do in the case of um, labor because it's just, you know, the wages that people are paid, it's not as public that information is not as public as the prices that firms charge. So there has to be, you know, some way for the government to be able to compile wage data and publicize it. Um, So the kind of reform that's necessary may may be, you know, relatively simple, a matter of um, making this information more available. Um, It may, though, require something more substantial. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds of antitrust law, but to put it very briefly, it you know the courts have put up a lot of barriers to bringing an antitrust case it's it's hard to win an antitrust case it seems to be even harder in the case of labor markets because of the lack of information and also because of certain peculiarities about how labor markets operate so this might be an area where legislative uh, reform would be helpful basically you know new laws that just made it somewhat easier to bring uh, uh these uh cases And then the last category are monopolization cases. Um, The Supreme Court has cut back on these what are called Section 2 cases, monopoly cases, over the last several decades. Really, it's not even the Supreme Court and the lower courts have as well. So it's hard to bring these cases. Um, In the case of labor markets, I think at the current time, the real problem is more about information. It's very hard to know which which companies are actually – dominating particular labor markets. You know, so they're, they're companies that are very big employers, but, you know, if their factories or work sites are in big cities and, or scattered around the country, they may very well not have power over their workers because if, if they underpay their workers, their workers can quit and find another job. Um, as you mentioned before, a, a lot of the kind of, you know, market power um concerns arise in rural areas or thinly populated areas, maybe small towns, where you might have a, a like just a, a relatively small company that owns a big factory, for example, that has the power to suppress wages. Um, but those cases are kind of hard to find. Um, so uh, I think the law needs to be strengthened in various ways so that both the government and private plaintiffs have stronger incentives um, to bring these cases. But um, that's very much a work in progress. There's so little known about this type of behavior. I think we need to learn more before, um, you know, being able to figure out exactly what kind of reform would be uh, appropriate. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
1: Okay so I guess what I'm hearing is kind of a two step process where the data set needs to be a lot more robust and that would enable uh, a sense of where to go with the legislation. Yes exactly. Okay. Um I admit that about oh maybe been four months ago maybe longer I was uh, listening to a podcast the New York Times reporter is beat is labor and uh, he was a bit pessimistic about whether unions would manage to get a whole lot stronger than they are now, which is a lot weaker than they once were. And he particularly went into factors that would be familiar to all of us, uh, globalization, digitization, uh, artificial intelligence, Um, any vantage point on the peculiar challenges that they pose? And I think probably part of that question is uh, eventually veering into the whole notion of gig workers.
0: Right. So, uh, you know, the gig economy from an antitrust perspective is a kind of a, double-edged uh, sword. Um, so there's a good and a bad side to it. Um, so, and, and you know, this is connected to, let's say, remote work or globalization. Um, so, for example, imagine, you know, a number of us can do our jobs from any place in the country or any place in the world. You know, maybe you're an accountant or even a lawyer under certain circumstances or, you know, a tax advisor, you know, these sort of white collar jobs where you don't actually have to be on a, a, on a factory floor or in a restaurant that mobility will actually give employees power vis-a-vis their employer for the very simple reason that, you know, if I'm currently in Chicago and working for somebody in Washington DC and you know, the, the Washington DC company is not going to pay me enough. I just quit and I go to work for somebody in Los Angeles without, you know, leaving my house. And so that gives me bargaining power. Which also means that antitrust law is not as as important. Okay. Now that obviously is not gonna help um you know workers who actually you know use their hands and have to be in a particular place, but um there's a sense in which antitrust law becomes less necessary um as um as as markets become more competitive. And ironically, while globalization hurts unions. It can actually help workers, at least to the extent that we in America can, you know, sell our services overseas. Maybe, you know, over over Zoom. Um, so, um, so, th- so that's kind of complicated. Now, there's a, a real worry, and I think it's 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 a, it's um, very much justified workers that um, that things could go in the opposite direction or already have. So, imagine uh, I'll let you use your imagination for this, but imagine a big tech company that uh, invents a platform that allows um, uh, people to provide services to customers, okay? And these people are, in a sense, working for the platform, but are also, in a sense, working for the customers. Um, So the, uh, the firm that sets up this platform says that the workers are actually themselves customers. They're independent contractors who are buying, you know, effectively buying, Access to the platform and then providing a service directly to um, to the customers. Okay, Uh, so we see this in rideshare and a a range of of settings. You know, how do how do you think about this uh, from an antitrust perspective? Well, you know, if if it's really true that someone's just buying access to a platform, they're not they're not a worker, and so if they brought an antitrust case because they thought that. Um, the company was underpaying them or overcharging them for the platform, uh, they might lose. But on the other hand, if you think that they're being misclassified and that they're actually workers, um, then, um, you know, there are concerns both from the standpoint of labor law, you know, whether this company is trying to undermine potential labor organization and antitrust law, you know, maybe the firm is pretending that its employees are not actually employees and yet, you know, treating them like employees, that is controlling their behavior and fixing their wages in certain ways. So, um, so it's a kind of a messy, difficult uh, area of the law. And you know, I'm sorry I can't give you a nice clean answer, but, but I think a lot of thinking has to be done about uh, the appropriate uh, approach to this problem.
1: Yeah, no, it would be on my mind. I just had your colleague, John List, on, on the uh, podcast, and he, of course, was at Uber at one point and then at Lyft. So, um, yeah, so his book goes into that. I, I wanted to go to one other little tangent. You mentioned at one point, if I read correctly, that when you sign a non-compete, which is pretty common, maybe too common, in fact, as you point out, um, that employees, at least potentially or should, in fact, maybe by by law, receive compensation for Giving away that mobility, um, either you can say about that, or clarify this for me if I if I misread what was going on there.
0: Sure. So, uh, a covenant not to compete, also called a non compete, is a provision in an employment contract that says that when the worker no longer works for the employer, the worker uh, is not allowed to work for an employer's competitive. For a certain amount of time and usually confined to a geographic area. So, for example, there's this famous, you know, Jimmy John's uh, scandal. So workers at Jimmy John's were bound by non-competes, which said that, you that, you know, after you leave Jimmy John's, you cannot work for another fast food company um, or sandwich making company within, you know, a certain number of miles of the Jimmy John uh, that you uh, worked at. Or for that matter, any Jimmy John's, and for a certain amount of time—I don't remember what it was, six months or, or a year. So that's that's a non-compete. Um, non-competes are illegal in California, actually, or, or non-competes involving workers are illegal in California and a couple other states. In most states, they're they're legal under just sort of standard what's called common law, just regular law, as long as they're you know reasonable, whatever that means. They can't be too broad. You know, a non-compete can't say uh, is not permitted to say you're not allowed to work for anybody for 10 years or 100 years. You know, so there has to be some, you know, limitation. Limitation. Okay. so non-competes, you know, they're traditionally called restraints of trade, which is exactly what antitrust law is focused on, because, you know, while, you know, if I work for, let's say, a trucking company and I quit and I'm not allowed to work for another trucking company for six months or a year, that means I can't. Maybe I can't do what I do best, and other companies are not able to hire me and, and put me uh, to use in a way that benefits the public generally. Um, that's that's the concern, and there's a concern that these non-competes can be overused and abused in ways that you know have a significant, cause significant harm not only to workers but to uh, consumers uh, generally. So, for example, you know, again, think of the small town or rural area where let's suppose you have a small number of employers, including maybe let's call it three meat processing plants that are owned by different companies. If, you know, one of the meat processing plants uh, requires its workers to sign non-competes, then um, the other meat processing plants can't hire them away. And if that and if they can't hire them away, then the first company will be able to suppress their wages because it doesn't have to worry that if it underpays them, um, those workers go. Yeah. Right. So and in addition, you know, that kind of behavior could prevent a new company from entering that market because the new company might think I'm not going to be able to hire anybody. Um, So this kind of systemic harm caused by non-competes hasn't received much attention It's changed a little bit because a bunch of academics have been um, surveying workers to find out how many people are actually subject to non-competes. And it turns out it's just a huge number of people, you know, tens of millions of workers are subject to non-competes. And, you know, traditionally we thought non-competes might be used for CEOs or tech people or, you know, people with access to proprietary information. But as the Jimmy John's case shows, actually, they're just used in a kind of broad brush way to constrain workers. Um, so this can uh, undermine competition in the economy and again result in, you know, significant har- hardship for people who are unable to you know, get the best job that uh, that they're qualified for. And also, you know, for consumers, because it means that businesses cannot hire the best people uh, that they need.
1: Yeah, no, it makes lots of sense. Um, you know, with Jimmy John's, I mean, what percentage of the uh, workforces and fast food industry these days is pretty significant, particularly in some places. Um, Holding reminds me a bit of arbitration clauses in, in contracts uh, being hired that are also been subject to a lot of use and perhaps overuse and abuse. Um, right.
0: So the, the arbitration clauses, the complaint about arbitration clauses – is that they're typically a way to prevent workers from bringing class action lawsuits against employers. Because if you're subject to an, an arbitration clause, it's you know just a one-to-one dispute resolution procedure. So that would make it hard for workers to bring antitrust cases. If you're subject to an, an arbitration clause, you generally can't bring an antitrust case uh, you can't do it, you know, you can't bring a class action because the arbitration clause meet, says you have to go to arbitration. Now, you could go to arbitration and bring your arbitra- bring your antitrust claim, but, you know, it's very hard for just, a, it's, it's rarely going to be worth it for a single person to go through that because the losses here are really systemic. You know, a worker might be ter- deprived of a few, few thousand dollars a year, but the cost of proving that to an arbitrator would be a lot more than a few thousand dollars a year. So these claims are only worth bringing if if they can be aggregated across hundreds or thousands of workers. So the arbitration clauses, you know, prevent that from happening. And as for, you know, you mentioned the fast food industry, you know, th- there's another famous paper by some academics a, a few years ago, which simply um, looked in this database of arbitration, sorry, of uh, franchise agreements, and found out that I think it was around 60% of uh, all franchise, all fast food franchise agreements have no poach clauses in them, meaning that um, you know a, a McDonald's restaurant cannot hire workers away from another McDonald's restaurant, and uh, and that's a you know this is so you have McDonald's and Burger King and Arby's, all these guys had no poach clauses. You're talking about millions of employees, maybe you know 10 million employees or more across the entire country. So this was a huge, you know, a huge deal. It led to uh substantial litigation, interestingly, led by uh the state attorneys general, particularly the state of Washington, sued a lot of these franchise companies and basically managed to to force them to drop their no-poach clauses. But this is just another example of how this type of collusive behavior that can harm workers is actually extremely common. People just didn't know about it until fairly recently.
1: Yeah, no, you take the the non poaching the the non-competes, the uh, arbitration clause, it starts to be a a really uneven playing field. So uh, on that sobering note, I think we'll have to draw to a close for today. Uh, I do want to thank you so much, Eric. It's a very important book and a very important topic. Uh, This has been episode number 115. Are labor markets competitive? I think the answer is uh, to a lesser extent than we'd all like to to think they are. Uh, Eric's book, he's the author of How Antitrust Failed Workers. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by typing in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight into the search bar on the New Books Network. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, having read Barbara Ehrenreich more than once, uh, I thought I would take one of her quotes. She says, we can hardly pride ourselves in being the world's preeminent democracy if the large numbers of citizens spend half their waking hours in what amounts to a dictatorship. Until next time, take care and be well.